said, oh, that'd be easy for you. That's a piece of cake. You do that kind of stuff all the time. Well, doing it and preaching it are really two very, very different things. See, in one sense, if you were like, oh, show me outreach in the Bible, that word doesn't show up, right? I mean, it's not like, it's kind of like one of them Trinity words. It's, kind, it's there, it's everywhere, but it's nowhere, right? You're not going to find it there. You're not going to read about Paul doing some car wash in Athens. You're not going to see an Easter egg hunt in Ephesus, nor are you going to see a fall festival in Rome. I mean, you're not going to see those sort of things in the scripture. But what you do see is Jesus, for instance, going out from town to town. He sends out his disciples. They go out into town. They heal people. They cast out demons ahead of him to kind of prepare the way. They proclaim the gospel. Then Jesus comes along, and what does he do? Oh, he comes into the town and heals the sick. He casts out demons. He makes lame people get up and walk. Right? He does all of these sort of things. You see him follow those sorts of things up by what? By proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. To believe, to repent, to believe, to be baptized. That's the kind of stuff that follows after that. So sort of this principle that you see, I believe we see in Scripture, is that these good works, the good things that we do, open a door. They soften people's hearts. They prepare them to listen. And over time, over persistent time, people, we hope, will take that next step. And we're going to talk a little bit about that today. Outreach, as we typically know it, as we've talked about it really over the last 20 years, has been those sort of things we just talked about. Free car washes, water giveaways. We've done a lot of these as a church, and, and they're good things. Don't misunderstand me. I think they're great things to do. They get us out into the public. They get us seen by people, and they get some rapport built. And if we do them consistently, the good thing about that is people start to know us. They start to, oh, King of Grace, those are the guys who do this thing and this thing and this thing. And those are all associated with good things in the community. Those are all positive. Sometimes as we're doing these, uh, you know, people ask, I remember car washes in particular were a great one for this. You know, you do a free car wash, somebody pulls up, you know, they get out of their car, you have a crew of people go start washing their car, and you've got one person standing back, able to talk with them. And they'll ask, why are you doing this? It's a great opportunity. We used to teach people to say, this is just a practical demonstration of God's love. It's a free gift to you. It can't be bought or purchased. Just like God's love is a free gift. You can only receive it. And then you just kind of hope for a conversation to build out of that. But even if it's just a water giveaway where you're just doing this quick contact with somebody, it was an opportunity. A seed got planted. It was an idea got pressed into somebody's hand and head in a practical way that maybe they'd never thought about it before. Now, not every encounter 
goes that way, right? Not every encounter goes with somebody asking a question of why or whatever. Sometimes our outreach is just a door. It's just a doorway. People don't always walk through it. In fact, sometimes they walk past that door a bunch of times. But through repeated encounters with us, we hope that they'll begin to see who we are as people and, and listen to the message. Over repeated encounters with a committed group of believers or with the church in general, a level of rapport gets built up. Think of like our harvest party or Halloween party or the Easter egg hunts that we've done. All those sort of things out on the square. People started to expect them. We'd see the same faces. We watched kids grow up. And then we'd invite them to something a little more involved, like VBS. And we've had families over the years that have become part of this church that started with outreaches. That's pretty exciting. To me, that makes those all worthwhile. That rapport gets built up. Barriers begin to come down. And eventually, people accept an invitation to come to a home Bible study or a church event. They come really because they're kind of curious now. Like they've seen us, they've met us, they've built a little bit of relationship. And they're curious. They come to see what makes these people do these things. And they come to see what's really behind the curtain. Are these people really nice or not? Are these people really good people? Or is this just a show for two hours of, it, of their Saturday morning once a quarter? They come to see if God is real. And they come to see if they could envision themselves being one of us. All of us are doing kind of the same thing when we participate in, in outreach, similar to what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 3. God has a field. He sends us to sow the seeds in that field and to water it. But let's remember, it is God who gives the growth. All that Paul's required to do is be faithful to go out and sow the seed. And so our outreaches are just a place where we can go out and sow seed. Be very intentional about sowing seed. Come with your game hat on, like you're ready to go out and do the thing, right? Sometimes... Things happen quickly. You run into somebody. I've been on outreaches. I run into someone. And literally, it's like, boom, a salvation just pops into your lap. You start talking to them. They want to know about Jesus. Like, they were right there. Somebody had already done all the prep work. God had already set their hearts. And like that, man, boom. The next Sunday, they're, you know, the next day, literally, you're meeting with them. And the next Sunday, they're in church. And they're just off. Off on their on their journey following Christ. I find that to be rare, but, but it has happened. 
We don't know. We're called to be laborers in the fields. And so outreach gives us that opportunity. But when we don't see results, it can become very hard and very discouraging to keep throwing seed, to keep scattering, and, and to keep watering. You might, some of you have grown gardens, and lately, I don't know what is up in the soil in, in, in Salem, but if you put seed on that soil, the only thing that grows well is the weeds. They come up. Dockweed grows really well there. Anything else I plant, I have not seen results from. Well, that's not true. I did have some peas come up, which the rabbits immediately ate. But nonetheless, Galatians 6.9 is a helpful reminder in these harder times where we're not seeing results. Paul writes in Galatians 6.9, Let us not become weary of doing good, for at the proper time will, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. You know, personally, I look back and, and see that God used outreach in my own life to open my heart to his call. It wasn't overnight by, by any means, but outreach prepared the soil of my heart over time. In July 1996, my father died. And though my mom and dad belonged to a church, it was my brother's church that really came out and cared for my mom and my family. She had been going to that church literally since I was born. I got raised as a young man in that church. They'd been there 40 years but it was my brother's church that were the ones that came out and really pressed in and cared week after week for my mom, showing up and, and helping to mow, things, mow lawns or, or provide whatever services she needed. These were the people that cared for her soul as well, that allowed her to talk, that talked to her. Now, for my part, I wasn't a believer. I was hostile to God. I couldn't care less about God. In fact, if you came and talked to me about God, I would tell you where to put it, and it wasn't any place pleasant, and it usually involved a number of explicatives that I don't repeat here. Um, but it didn't go unnoticed what they had done or what they were doing for my family. A few months later, I got the word that I was going to be, the army was going to station me back near my hometown at Aberdeen Proving Ground. And so my family moved back. And who do you think came out of the woodwork to help us? The church. Like, were these people Mormons or what? Like, they were everywhere. Like they were, but, but they were really helpful, and they were really genuine, and they were really kind. And over time, I got to know a bunch of these people and, and actually become friends with them. And I saw how they lived, and it wasn't just an act. Like, this is really who they were. They were weird. 
and I liked it. It kind of felt a little bit like the army for me. Like they had each other's back. They really cared about each other. They had a mission and they were on point in the mission. They were intentional about sharing the gospel with people. But not just in, you know, pounding a Bible on somebody's head, but, but getting out and doing the hard work of caring for people. Caring for one another and caring for their neighbors, people who didn't even like them, like when they, they, they had people moving, getting ready to leave. And they would just come out and they would help them. They'd get a bunch of them together and load somebody's truck up. What do they, they don't owe that person anything. They were just genuinely doing good. But before they would start, they'd pray. They prayed over everything. These people just prayed constantly. I mean, like, it drove me batty how much they prayed. But you see, what, you see how I'm talking about this? Like, God was at work in my heart. So instead of telling them off every time they invited me to something, I just got more and more curious about these people. But in the process, God changed me. And so when they finally invited me to church, I was kind of like, oh, you know, I kind of feel like I owe you. You've been nice to me. You've been good to my family. Okay, I'll go. I really didn't plan to go back because they were weird. But we did. And then we went back again. And I honestly heard God speak. Right? I did all the time. Like, it was like, oh, dude, that is crazy. No, God was speaking to me and telling me about all the things that I had had questions about over time. He was just giving me answers in Scripture. They were preaching through Romans. You know how that might would work. And by the time November rolled around, I gave my life to Christ. It completely transformed me. But God used these people, and it started with an outreach, and it's why I'm such a fan of outreach. But let me tell you, it, it wasn't outreach like an like uh, uh, Easter thing or um, you know, a harvest festival. Their outreach was intentional in going out and meeting people in the community and caring for them consistently. They saw a need, they would get people together, and they would meet a need. It's a different kind of outreach, but I think it's a very biblical outreach. Let's, let's go ahead then and move into um, what I think is at the core of outreach. See, anybody can do outreach. In truth, governments do it. I did it in the army in foreign countries. I, I work at the Salem Pantry. We do outreach all the time. We feed 700, people, 700 families a week. We go through 26 tons of food a week. There's only four of us. Therefore, it's a volunteer army that is out there. People are doing good, right? They're doing the outreach. And there's not a Christian among them. Not a single one, well, me. But there's not a Christian among them. But they have a gospel they're preaching, right? It's the gospel of we're going to do good because men are worth it. And, and if we just work a little harder, if we just educate a little bit more, if we just give a little more assistance, man will step up and be good and do good. 
because we're, we are good, right? We're people. That's the gospel according to our volunteers. They do a lot of good. And I'm grateful for them. But it bothers me that there isn't a Christian in any one of them. Not a single one. Now, we don't have a lot. I mean, you've heard me talk about this. I don't think there's more than three or 400 believers in the entire city of Salem. But not a one? Wow. Oh, that hurts. See, because the church historically has made its money on this. The church has historically shown brightest through its, its ability to serve, its outreach. Practically, those early Christians became known for loving kindness, the loving kindness and care that they had for everyone. They organized themselves very intentionally to be able to reach into their communities so that they could show the love of God, not just in a gospel presentation of words, but in their actions. They set up hospitals. It was an unheard of thing. Only the elites could get medical care. They set up hospitals and cared for everyone. They cared for widows. They brought orphans into their homes. They raised babies that had been left out on the streets to die. Christians became known as those who fed the hungry, gave shelter to the homeless, extended kindness to strangers, to refugees, to sojourners in the land. In the church of the first few centuries, Christians organized themselves to take the gospel out, not only in word, but sought to do good intentionally, to seek justice for the oppressed, to pursue peace, and extend loving kindness in very intentional and practical ways so that the words of Jesus Christ were not only heard, but experienced. So what made them so different? Well, I want to suggest that there are four loves that Scripture gives us, four loves that Jesus talks to his disciples about that are what made the difference. The first of those, the first two of those actually, are found in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark and Luke, but we're going to be looking at Matthew 22, verses 34 to 40. So if you open your Bible to Matthew 22, move down to verse 34, you'll find that um, Jesus is in the last, he's in Jerusalem, he's in the last few days of his life. He's about to be crucified a few days later. Now, in the specific context of this story, Jesus has been speaking with the Sadducees. They've been asking him questions. The Sadducees are a rather liberal sect uh, of the Jewish community, and they are trying to trip him up. They have failed at doing that. Jesus has flipped the tables on them, and they've walked away looking a little stupid. The Sadducees now get together, they talk about it and go, okay, our turn, we can do it, we're going to give him this tough question and see how he responds. So let's pick it up now in Matthew twenty-two thirty-four. 
It says, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Said, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. The lawyer really had asked a pretty simple question on the surface. But the truth is there's 613 laws in the Old Testament that Jesus could have chosen from. Yet without hesitation, he goes straight to Deuteronomy 6.5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. The scripture that he gave would have been very familiar to everybody. It's part of what's called the Shema. And it was repeated when you got up in the morning, when you went to bed, before you went to bed at night, and several other times during the day. That actual section of scripture in Deuteronomy says, write it on your hands. Put it on the lintel of your door. Write it everywhere. Teach your children from the time they get up to the time they go to bed. Teach them this command. Not overly surprising that Jesus went to this. Jesus says it is the first and greatest command. That is, he's prioritizing love for God above every other commandment. Why? Why is it so important that you and I love God with all our heart, all our soul, and all of our mind? Well, let me start broadly, and I'll try and get more specific. We are to love God with all that is in us because God is the God of all creation. He is the creator God who created us in his image. He is the God who knew you before the foundations of the earth. The God who chose you and adopted you. Adopted you into his family as his son prior to the first word of creation, prior to anything existing, God had already chosen you. You are to love God with all of your heart and soul and strength because before you were born, God sent his son Jesus to live a perfect life in your place, a perfect life you and I have failed to live. And then he sent Jesus to the cross where he placed the sin of all those he had chosen onto his son. Then he punished Jesus in our place for our sin. He poured out all of his stored up wrath against our sin, and he poured it onto Jesus until he had killed him. And he killed him in our place. Because that's what we deserved. Then Jesus, after he died, was buried. But God, but God, I heard that earlier. Thank you, Adam. But God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, raised Jesus from the dead on the third day, thereby showing that he had accepted the sacrifice of Jesus' life and death for the forgiveness of our sins. What's more, Forty days later, Jesus ascended into heaven and is now seated at the right hand 
of his Father where he makes intercession for us day and night. That's a reason we should love God. Why should you love God? Because God loved you so much that he gave his only son so that you would not perish but have eternal life through faith in Jesus. You should love God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength because he first loved you. And he promises never to abandon you. He promises through his word that, it, that if you go to the highest heights, you go to the lowest depths, he will be there. If you go to the uttermost parts of the earth, he's there. My guess is if you could get that, that web telescope thing that just, you know, it shot way, 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 way out there. And we found that, oh my gosh, there's all this stuff well beyond anything we thought possible. If science is right in our universe, our galaxy, the whole thing, space, is still expanding and getting bigger and bigger. If you could get like a cosmic surfboard and ride that thing out into the distance, guess what? You haven't outdistanced God's ability to be with you. If you're dying of hunger, if you're shipwrecked or adrift, persecuted, tortured, being put to death, God is there. He will not abandon you. His presence is always with you. And he loves you with a deep and abiding love that, for me, is completely incomprehensible. That's why we're to love him. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your might, is the first and greatest commandment. And if we don't get that one right, we will never get any of the other commandments about love right. To the degree that you get this one love, the love of God right, all the others will fall into place and be possible. And true gospel outreach, one that loves those, loves those we are seeking to reach out to, cannot be done unless we love God in ever-increasing amounts with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our strength. Loving God is at the very core of gospel, Christian gospel outreach. It is, loving God is literally the genesis and wellspring of outreach. Loving God is the hope and strength of gospel outreach. And without loving God, there is no gospel outreach. Without loving God, we'll also fail to love our neighbors so let's look at that second part of Matthew 22, there in verse 39, after having said that loving God is the first and greatest commandment, Jesus says that the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now what does that mean and what kind of impact does that have on outreach? Well, Jesus here is quoting from Leviticus 19.17 which is really a summation sentence, if you will, of verses 9 through 17. If you took a moment and, and looked at those verses, 9 through 17, uh, you would find that God 
through Moses, is speaking to Israel. He covers a lot of different things. He says that when they harvest from a field, they're not to scour that field, but instead to to leave some of the harvest for the poor and the sojourner in the land so that they won't go hungry. They're not to steal or lie or, or, or deal falsely with one another, with others living in the land. They're not to oppress or rob their neighbors. They're not to underpay their workers or pay them late. They're not to curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind. They are instead to pursue righteousness and justice for both the poor and the rich without any partiality. They're not to be slanderers or to hold a grudge. But then in verse 17, he wraps that up by saying, love your neighbor as yourself. That whole section in there, whether you are a a sojourner in the land, or whether you're a brother, or whether you're just somebody who lives there alongside them, that's who's being included in this idea of neighbors. Love your neighbor as yourself. Really, it's the gold rule we've all been taught, probably since kindergarten. You know, do unto others as you want them to do unto you. Treat others like you want to be treated. None of us want to go hungry. None of us want to be deceived or lied to. None of us want to be treated unjustly. Anybody up for unjust treatment today? Nope. All right. Didn't think so. None of us want to be mocked. None of us want to be cursed. None of us want to live where there's no forgiveness or have a grudge held against us. So love your neighbor as yourself. That's the command. That's what Jesus is saying there. The neighbor, uh, as we said, ranges from all sorts of people. So in your own communities, it's not just the person who lives next to you that you like. He really is talking about the broader community. People that are harder to talk to. People that you don't necessarily like. But there's another thing I want us to look at in this passage from Leviticus 19. There's something I want us to see because at the end of every one of these statements, there's another thing that gets said. He says, I am the Lord. Each one of those verses ends with this little statement that says, I am the Lord. Why? Why is that there? What does that mean? What's the... Okay. Kind of a weird thing. You're just trying to make your point, Moses? What? I don't think so. I think instead, what Moses is, is conveying, what God is conveying through Moses, is that these are my commands to you. Israel, these are my commands to you. Not Moses' commands. These are my commands. God, these are my commands to you. I am the Lord, and you are my representatives on the earth. And your words and your actions are to showcase my loving kindness to a watching world. So feed the poor, because that's my heart. Feed the sojourner. 
Give justice, pursue peace, do good to those in the land. God is saying, I am the Lord, so if you love me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, do as I've commanded. Friends, outreach isn't just limited to Saturday events on the square or VBS week in church. Outreach can be conducted everywhere and anywhere. Outreach can be conducted in the workplace to provide fair treatment and fair wages, in our communities to provide fair and equitable housing, to provide nourishing or sustainable food. Outreach can be conducted in our own lives and in our churches or in our courts to seek to pursue justice for the oppressed. Where can the gospel Where can gospel-centered outreach that springs forth from the heart of God be established or conducted? Well, I'd say it's anywhere you have neighbors, anywhere you have community, anywhere where you live, work, and play. These places where like-minded followers of Jesus can get together and say, we see a need. And therefore, we're going to organize ourselves together to meet a need, to care for people, to be Jesus to these people, to show God's loving kindness to the community, to bring flourishing to the earth. It's through these outreaches, outreaches like this, both the quick Saturday events and these long-term outreaches as we love our neighbors, that outsiders begin to see something about who God is. They get a glimpse behind the wall as they get to know us to see how Jesus' followers live and how they love one another. And let me be clear here, no matter how effective an outreach is, they will not want to be part of a community where there is no love for one another. We must be people who love one another. In John 13, as Jesus is having his last talk with his disciples before he's crucified, he gives them a final command in verse 34. He says, a new commandment I give to you to love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. Let me ask you, how did Jesus love? Well, first I would say that Jesus loved completely. He gave everything. He loved God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. And as a result of that, wherever he went, he gave life. He was patient and kind. He healed the sick and the lame. He freed those oppressed by demons. He extended mercy. He treated those who were the vile and lowest with dignity. Offering the love of the Father, he extended hope and peace to everyone he met. Jesus describes himself as lowly and gentle, ready to take on the burden of those who come to him. Well, look to Jesus and you see the heart of a man who loved God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. Follow Jesus. Follow Jesus, and you must take on his image. You must be conformed to his ways. You must love God with all your heart, soul, and strength. You must love your neighbor as yourself. 
and as he told his closest friends and would then show them, you must love one another as he loved them. And how did Jesus show his love for us? Well, he laid down his life. He humbled himself in perfect unity with the Father. He submitted himself to his Father's will. He took on our burden, our sin. He paid the price willingly. And as he hung there dying, what did he do? He forgave. He forgave his friends who betrayed and abandoned him. He forgave his enemies who persecuted him and treated him unjustly. He forgave those who mocked him. He forgave those who killed him. He forgave you and I because we're the ones who put him there. Friends, this is a radical call of loving God and one another. You and I in this body, the body of Christ, are united in one faith, one God, one Lord, one Savior, by one Spirit, in one baptism. So we humble ourselves, believing the best of others and counting them more worthy than ourselves. We submit to one another. We bear one another's burdens. We lay down our lives for one another. We forgive as Christ forgave, holding no grudge or debt, even toward our enemies. Instead, we love. When we are betrayed, we love. When we are treated unjustly, we love. When we are slandered, we love. When we are wronged, we love. At the heart of forgiveness is love. Love for God and the love of God in us and flowing through us to others. Love, as Jesus loved, is dying. Dying to me, dying to my pride, dying to my arrogance, and living as Christ lived. I'm not saying this easy. Obviously, Christ died doing it. But it is what he calls us to do and he fills us with his spirit so that we're never alone. So that we're strengthened to live like Christ. This radical love is how we are to love one another in the church. Always loving, always dying to ourselves, always forgiving, always seeking to build up, always seeking to encourage, always seeking to exhort. Church, this is the love that is the wellspring of outreach. It's the love for our neighbors. Um, it's the love that, for our neighbors that sends us into dark places. But it is the love for one another, flowing out from the very heart of God that is the bonfire that draws them in to its warmth. Jesus was clear in John 13, 35, that our love for one another is how people know that we are his followers. If we do not love one another, our outreach is just a hollow shell. What I've just described is hard, and I'm going to very quickly wind this up by saying what we're called to do next is even harder, and that's to love our enemies. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus takes a series of culturally understood sayings and flips them on their head. One of those is found in Matthew 5, 43 through 45, where Jesus says, You have heard that it was said you shall not, 
You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Jesus lived this out. He lived it out. How did he live that out? Well, let me give you this. Romans 5.10 reminds us that while we were still enemies, while we were still enemies to God, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. When were you forgiven? You were forgiven when you were still an enemy of God. God didn't wait for you to get your stuff together to pursue you with his relentless love. God didn't wait for you to search him out to begin the reconciliation process. No, while you were still sinners, still enemies, still children of wrath, he made a way for each and every one of us. God, who is rich in mercy, made a way for us. He opened our eyes, softened our heart, transferred us out of the dominion of darkness and into the kingdom of light while we were still his enemies. That's what God did with his enemies. So when he says, love your enemies, he's already given us the example and we're living proof of it. To love your enemies is to be God's representatives on earth. It is to be his sons. That's what he's talking about there when he says that. So that you may be sons of your father in heaven. A son is a representative of his father. Jesus is saying, I loved that way. God loved you that way. Now go be sons of the father and love your enemies that way. Lay down your life, even for your enemies. Go into a broken world that hates the light, that hates God, that hates his love, and offer his peace through Jesus Christ, his son. To love our enemies is to be made in the image of God and to be conformed to the image of Christ. So friends, to engage in consistent, persistent gospel outreach is to be a son of God. It is to love our enemies and to extend God's love to those who declare themselves to be God's enemies in the hope that as he did with us, he will have mercy and grace on them and give saving faith to some. It's your story. It's my story. It's the story of the gospel. But we must follow his example to love enemies and extend mercy and love if we're going to do faithful gospel outreach. So church today, in closing, I set before you four loves that will work together to produce effective gospel outreach. It all starts with loving God with all your heart, soul, and strength. From that flow love for your neighbor, love for one another, and even love for your enemies. Let me encourage you not just to participate in the church outreach events, but to begin to get with each other, get with like-minded believers, and see where in the community 
God's love needs to be shown. You don't need to wait for a pastor to lead you in that. You know what's right. You know what's good. Maybe it's feeding the poor. Maybe it's finding shelter for those in need. Caring for refugees. Standing up for and with the oppressed. Friends, I I worked in outreach here for a lot of years before I moved to Salem. And I can tell you the need in this city is great. There are lots of opportunities. If you don't want to start something, you can join something that already exists out there. They don't even have to be believers. You can be the light in that as well, like I do in our food pantry in Salem. Gospel outreach is contingent on God's love. Us loving God, loving one another, loving our neighbors, loving our enemies. Amen? Amen. Let me pray.